Welcome to SVNM is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SVNM is here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to season three of SBNM is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, member services manager and podcast producer. It's going to be a little hard not to glow with pride in this brief one minute introduction for this particular episode. I think that we all have our goals uh, where we hope to make an impact in our lives, in our work, in our community, our relationships, or some of us might have the hope to leave something better than we found it. By hiring Dr. Amanda Parker and adding her to the member services team, I think that the state bar has accomplished both of these goals, and I am personally very proud to have her as part of the organization. With that, I am pleased to have this episode be a part of the launch of the State Bar of New Mexico Equity and Justice Program. Dr. Parker and Leon Howard, who is the co-chair of the Committee on Diversity in the Legal Profession, interview each other on what this new program is, what work needs to be done in the community, general equity and diversity in the profession, and how the State Bar Equity and Justice Program will help move the profession forward. This is truly an outstanding discussion. I encourage you to listen all the way through. They cover so, so much. My favorite moments are when first Dr. Parker discusses leading this kind of community and organizational-based change with head, heart, and hand. And my second favorite moment is when Leon Howard talks about community healing. It really struck a chord and it was quite powerful. So without further ado, I hand it over to Dr. Parker and Leon Howard. Thank you so much, Morgan, for having us on the show today. Um, I am Amanda Parker. I'm the, equi- the program manager for equity and justice here at the state bar. And I have Leon Howard here from ACLU New Mexico. Uh, Leon, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yes, thank you, Amanda. And it's great to be here um, with you today. Um, a little bit about myself um, in my day job. I am the ACLU of New Mexico legal director, and um, this role has taken on a new sense of purpose for me recently. Um, At the end of January, I lost a a dear mentor and a civil rights giant in our community, um, Phil Davis. Um, Phil Davis passed away due to complications with the breakthrough case of covid And um, since the mid 80s, Phil served on the ACLU of New Mexico legal panel, uh, which is a guiding body um, that kind of shapes a lot of our legal work. And for many years, he was the de facto legal director. So I really feel like I'm I'm walking in the shadow of a giant when it comes to Phil. Um, He litigated some of the most important early cases of the ACLU of New Mexico. Um, and as, as of last week, or, or I'm sorry, a few weeks ago, the week before he passed away, he was uh, showing no signs of slowing down. So this um, news has really um, caused a, uh, um, some devastation in the, the legal community. Um, the impact he had is immeasurable. 
Um, I saw recently in an Albuquerque journal article uh, commemorating his life um, that, that he was coined as Mr. Civil Rights New Mexico. And um, I, I couldn't think of a more fitting title because there's not really a civil rights attorney in the state who he didn't mentor or impact in some way. Um, and so I just wanted to open up and, and remember Phil before we get into this conversation. Um, and I'm excited to have this conversation uh, about equity and justice program and my work on the Committee on Diversity. Um, and the, the next thing you know I want to acknowledge is it is Black History Month. And uh, I, I came with a nugget about... Um, New Mexico Black history uh, in the legal profession. Um, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the, the first Black attorney in New Mexico signed the role of attorneys in 1916. His name was George W. Malone. And um, I've actually seen the role of attorneys where he, he signed uh, the role of attorneys and he listed his city as Blackdom, New Mexico. And uh, Blackdom, New Mexico is known as a historic freedom colony. It's located here in Chavez County uh, that was founded by African-American settlers in 1901. So that Black history nugget, I think we can kind of move to our conversation that we're here for today. Thank you so much for sharing that about um, about Black History Month and Blackdom. I don't think that many New Mexicans know very much about it at all. So thank you for that. And I'm also really sorry to hear about your friend. And it seems like a horrible loss to the to the legal community. So. Um, but as we get into this discussion, so tell me a little bit. You are the co-chair of the Committee on Diversity in the Legal Profession. So tell me a little bit about that work and then how you approach equity and justice work in general. Great, thanks. Yeah, I, I do. I'm a co-chair of the Committee on Diversity in the Legal Profession, and I, I co-chair the committee with um, Denise Chanez, who is a powerhouse attorney at, at the Rody Law Firm. And um, we've co-chaired the committee for about seven years and really proud of some of our programming and the work we do. Um, I really view our committee as uh, a mechanism to kind of monitor diversity in the bar, um, specifically as it pertains to diverse attorneys and how they're, they're faring in the legal profession. Um, and connected to that mission, we have programming that that aids it. Um, we have a report that comes out every 10 years and a sub-report um, every five years. And that really gives us a snapshot of um, diverse attorneys' uh, numbers and, you know, surveys in terms of um, positions they hold um, and, and, you know, obstacles that, that we're collectively facing in the legal profession. And at the end of the report, there's kind of recommendations for the state bar to implement. Uh, and, and I'm proud uh, to say that one of the recommendations in the last report was to have a full-time position at the state bar dedicated um, to diversity issues. And that's uh, 
we've been able to realize that and I'm on this podcast with you and you hold the position we recommended, um, Dr. Amanda Parker. And so um, really proud of that. Um, we also have a um, program that's really well known in the legal profession, the Art Hadamio Summer Clerkship Program, which gives um, opportunities for diverse law students and, and law students who have overcome obstacles uh, to get to law school in the first place and, and place them in the best legal settings in the state. Um, we're working with the Young Lawyers Division and Justice Thompson uh, on a um, judicial clerkship program that is very similar to the Art Hadamio program, except for it puts um, second year law students in judicial clerkships um, at, at different levels of courts in our state. And finally, we have a coaching program that's aimed at helping uh, students, diverse applicants to the bar exam um, and pairing them with coaches to help them with their study habits and, and mindset in approaching the bar exam. Um, so with that, I think I'm going to return the question and um, have you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the equity and justice program. Um, thank you so much. And I just have to say that I am always just honored and humbled to be part of this programming and work in partnership with incredible leadership around the state that's already been working on this like you. Um, so I am from, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I'm born and raised here. Um, I spent most of my career in education before going back to graduate school, where I got my doctorate um, focused on critical race studies in education, and then critical whiteness studies is kind of where I have been, which is a study of how historically and presently whites have maintained institutional power and interpersonal power and how that all plays out. So that's that's kind of where my specialty zone is in academia. And then I've also had a lot of um, experience in the education and doing anti-racist education or anti-oppressive education um, at the adult and K-12 level. So it's been a lifetime passion of mine. And so once I got, I got into a master's program and I was studying, I was pretty focused on the school to prison pipeline in that, in that um, program. And then I, I just had to keep going. I just could not stop. So I was on different research projects at UNM and I did a, a bunch of other work and now here I am. So, so I'm ready to start getting some things done. We we're really happy to have you as a part of our bar and really excited. And I, you know, I think we'll dig into to some of more about um, your vision for for the equity and justice program. I realize you asked me kind of my approach in doing equity, uh, diversity, inclusion type work. Um, and um, when I think about that, Personally, my my approach is a starting starting places that we all come with with bias, and you know you have to approach everything you you do in this work with the mindset to be actively anti racist, actively anti misogynistic, um, and I realize those are heavy words, and and in this work you kind of have to desensitize people to 
the the words that cause some sort of emotion and and reaction in people um and and just start digging into the the actual work and looking at um the systems looking at the reasons why there's disparities in our communities and in the workplace, in the legal profession, in schools, in healthcare. And, and so that that's kind of a, a starting place for my approach. And for somebody who's kind of an expert in the work, I would um, ask you the same question. Um, thank you. And I think when I look at when I guess I think about my approach, I think about it from many different ways, because I really think in order to develop a consciousness or what I like to call critical consciousness, and that's what it's called in certain fields where it kind of encompasses all of these different systems that are interlocking. And um, I tend to approach it really from making as many connections as possible um, and growing connection. I think one of the damages of our systems is how disconnected people feel from one another. And so really kind of building from that space, I tend to really still always approach it as a student more so than a teacher, even in my spaces I, I inhabit. So I, I just remain very curious about, about where the work can go. And then I also, um, and then I also do think I love what you just said about using language that people avoid, because if we don't name dynamics correctly, we won't be able to undo them. And so there is a lot of softening language about, um, whether it's race or gender or sexuality, disability, that that makes people kind of feel a little too comfortable. And so, and that comfort doesn't lead to the changes that we need. So when I think about approaching it, I really do have a full approach of how do I connect my head, heart, and hands in this work. Um, so if one is out of balance, we're just really not going to get there. So I think about that. I think that's kind of how I approach things. Dr. Parker, I, I love that approach, uh, particularly when you talk about collaboration. I've seen firsthand hand how you've come into this position in a short amount of time, have started building allies and getting to know the landscape and players in our legal community. And, and you know, a collaborative approach is really always going to work best. Um, so when I think about your position and even someone who, who sits uh, as a co-chair at um, on the Committee on Diversity in the Legal Profession, I don't think in general people know the difference between, you know, Committee on Diversity, the Equity and Justice Program, uh, the Equity and Justice Commission, Access to Justice Commission, and so on. So what makes your program unique and, and why is it different than these other programs? Well, when I think about the other, I, well, for one, I collaborate with the, the Equity and Justice Commission, and I hope to get involved more there on the education side. The Equity and Justice Program here at the bar is unique because it's brand new. So we really don't know exactly where it's going and how, and, and what we're going to build. And so I find that really exciting. I will say that right now I'm very focused focused on the recommendations from the reports that you mentioned earlier. 
um, where there was quite a bit of discrimination, harassment, bias reported by members of the bar in the profession and legal settings. And so the position comes out of those recommendations. And so as I started to form strategic planning and programming, I am very focused on um, the education piece. So there are CLEs coming out that we'll talk about later. I'm very focused on the research piece. There were stories that were not told in that report that we really need to capture, particularly um, people with disabilities and people from the LGBTQ plus community have been neglected. And so we need to capture more of those experiences as well as those as in the report, the category of non-Hispanic women of color. And so those are stories that we really need to bring to the surface. So research is one of them. And then support and retention. Um, I really want to start forming a very committed community um, that has a place at the bar to meet people, to educate people together, and to be within the movement together. I think that space is what will help sustain people. Um, and so that's that's part of the programming. And then what I'm really passionate about is building the pipeline of, of law students from underrepresented backgrounds. And I, um, I feel really passionately about that for the long haul. And so there's short-term and long-term goals, but right now the programming is really focused around those four major themes. So, and, you know, so I've had great collaboration across the board on those. So. Well, I heard you talk a little about um, CLE programming, and I guess I'll give a shameless plug that on March 9th, <laughs> you and I are, are co-presenting um, um, a CLE on anti-racism uh, at the noon hour. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to that conversation. And, and you know, it's a credit to some of your vision and, and programming. And I think it is a huge step that our state bar is having a um, CLE on anti-racism. And so I'm sure that's just scratching the surface for things to come. Um, one thing that, you know, when I'm talking about all these programs, um, I also want to just talk a little bit more, more about the Committee on Diversity, because we serve as a hub uh, for all of the kind of diverse groups, the Committee on Women, New Mexico Black Lawyers Association, New Mexico Hispanic Bar Association, the Native American Bars, the LGBTQ plus groups, the Disability Bar, and we really try to keep all those groups uh, communicating and, and offer opportunities to collaborate so that programming is stronger, so that, you know, uh, duplicative efforts aren't, aren't occurring. And so that's both a challenge and a benefit of, of our group um, to the bar. And so when I hear you talk about the equity and justice program in our uh, committee, uh, we're really focused on the health of the, the bar itself. And one thing that, that I'm constantly thinking about is how the legal system impacts diverse citizens, historically disenfranchised people and groups, and, and you know, how we start moving towards not only the health of the bar itself, but, but how the legal system is impacting uh, you know, people of color, historically disenfranchised groups. 
And that's one reason I'm excited about the Equity and Justice Commission, who I, who I think is really taking a look at that and having an opportunity for your position, our committee, that commission, like really getting together and, and moving uh, things forward in our state to close some of the disparities we see in, in the legal system. Um, and so when, with hearing that, uh, what would your ultimate long-term hopes be for, for the Equity and Justice Program? I think overall the hopes, and I think you name it really well, of like how many problems, there's problems within the profession and there's problems within the justice system that have horrible impact on marginalized groups. And we need to start addressing that head on. And I do believe there is, there are a lot of individuals that are very committed to justice reform and reform within the profession. So I think when I think about the hopes or how I can help with that, and I see myself because I am outside the legal profession. So some of the things that lawyers know about the system they're in, um, you know, I don't know as much about. So my goal is really to just think about, um, to just think about how do I facilitate that collaboration best? How do I bring people to the table? Um, and, and then also how do I invite people, more people into the work that maybe haven't known had an entry point? So I think my hope is, is that it becomes institutionalized throughout the, the system, but also that within that work, that the work goes deeper and deeper um, that, you know, we've named a lot of the problem and I think we're still trying to figure out how to intervene in it. And so those are some of my hopes or hopes with it. So, yeah. And then what are you, so when I think about this and I think about all of these different, different facets and your experience and how difficult this work is and how there was kind of a resurgence of interest in the work in 2020. Um, what do you think organizations are getting wrong about equity and inclusion work? I, I really think one thing that we get wrong in DEI work is, um, and purely looking at the numbers, um, and so, you know, when organizations endeavor to have more diverse workplaces, um, just bringing in people for the sake of, of making the numbers around diversity look better and not actually placing people in situations to succeed, connecting them with resources, um, and people who share their background and realizing that because there has been historic disenfranchisement that has led to people not getting those opportunities, there may be some gaps or um, uh, discomfort in, in certain work settings. And so I really think that's one thing that we get wrong. And then in terms of changing kind of culture around um, uh, diversity and inclusion work is just bringing somebody in, a great expert who does a ter terrific training and then the person leaves and, and 
you know, nobody's really having conversations about follow-up next steps to, to really dig in and change the culture because the training's not going to do that. A training's a starting place. Looking at numbers is a starting place, but the, the work you have to dig really deep and, and commit to it. And I just think that's something that, that we get wrong. And so I would reciprocate that question to you um, in your work. What do you think uh, people and organizations get wrong about equity and inclusion work? Well, I have a lot of, it depends on the day because I'm always thinking about this. And I think that you're, you're, pointing, you're pointing something out that's really important is a lack of long-term commitment. Um, to sustaining the thought processes and policies in workplaces, but also kind of a lack of commitment to diversifying the power within organizations. So you can put people in organizations, but if they don't have any power or say to make changes that make it fit better, it's it's ineffective. And so I think that one thing, um, I was just reading last night an article called Di- about diversity bombing, which I really liked that um, phrase. And I wish I could tell you who wrote it. I feel awful take, like saying that, not saying who said it, but just that organizations move very quickly. And I do see a real haste. And then also that um, people in power forget that their primary responsibility is to collaborate. And those of us from dominant groups, I'm a white woman, um, you know, I have had to learn how to share power in these spaces that even if I have an idea about what should be implemented, I don't go ahead without the collaboration of other folks, particularly folks of color or folks from the marginalized background I'm trying to work with. And I think those are things that organizations don't necessarily think about. They think about what sometimes, not so much how. And um, and so those are that's that's what I've been thinking about lately on that question. And I mean, along those lines, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to change? And then how do you get people who don't, who aren't invested in the work? How do you try to get them on board? So I know that's kind of a long question, but thinking about that. So this is a question that we are constantly grappling with uh, in our diversity work. When we have trainings or programming, um, the same people showing up, the people who, um, you know, are committed to this work and, and you can end up in a situation where you're often preaching to the choir. Um, and like I said earlier, this, this work is always ongoing. Um, I think this would resonate with lawyers really well because, you know, we call it the practice of law. It's something that you're always practicing, uh, you're never quite feeling like you've perfected it. And I really view uh, equity work in that same lens. And so not that people who are committed to the work don't need continued training, continued programming, but also people who um, may not be as far along in this type of work, bringing them along. And so that is something I don't have a great answer to because it's something we've struggled to, to do is find out how to reach a broader audience. I will say that at least on um, bringing people along, something that happens is people who feel like they're further along in these conversations, really attacking people who ask questions 
that that may seem inappropriate or make comments that may seem inappropriate and immediately go to attack mode, which then closes and shuts those people out instead of opening a dialogue uh, and trying to understand, you know, where the person's coming from and to bring them along instead of attacking them. So um, I think that that's just one problem that we're dealing with. And I, I want to ask you that same question, because I think that's something you've been a brought, brought in to do is to reach a broader audience in this work. Yeah, I agree. That is the question a lot of us grapple with. And I, I, the observation you make about people who are just learning and feel like they know a little bit more than everyone else kind of blow up spaces sometimes in ways that are not productive. Um, and when we do that anti-racism CLE, I'll be talking more about where that is in a level of consciousness and commitment to equity and inclusion work, because it, this is an emotionally transformative space. It's a work that it, it's not just political. It ends up being fairly disruptive. And so I think that what happens is that people need to kind of stay. There are places where you can speak frankly and places where you need to really stay in an educator space that believes that people can change. And anytime I think treating people like they can't change, Bell Hook says this, you can't treat, it's dehumanizing, right? You're um, and so how many times are people lost because they wanted to participate and then they were shut out by somebody who's kind of count believes they're in the right place, but they're actually working against progress um, and that that can feel good at the time. But for the long run, it doesn't it doesn't actually accomplish anything to shut someone down who asked the wrong question. And that is different than talking about accountability for overt acts of of racism and being offensive. But I think, I, I think, and I know I say this, we need to approach it more curiously. We need to look for openings into the dialogue and um, not everybody can do that work all of the time. And I think that that's the other discussion that has to be had is the cost for I, people of color to do that work is different than it is for um for me as a white person, that it doesn't harm me in, to do the work. It's difficult, but it's not harmful. And so I think those, there's just a lot to turn around, to turn over about that discussion. And also, of course, not letting people derail work by focusing too much on people who don't want to do it. And so a lot of times there's so much frustration built up over people who keep shooting it down that it can actually derail. And, um, and sometimes we just need to say, well, we're moving on without you, but we'll come back and see what we can do. So those are some of the thoughts I have on that. So one of the questions I've been asked, wanting to ask you, is any advice for me working with lawyers as someone who isn't one? That's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I still struggle working with lawyers sometimes in, in my day job. Um, I would say uh, that collectively lawyers really wear their proud uh, reputation well. 
Um, but but it, it, in seriousness, I, I do think that uh, one thing to know about working with lawyers is we live we live in the gray area. And so not to take personal uh, when you're in a meeting with lawyers and they're questioning everything or meetings can seem to drag on because um, folks are getting stuck on particular points that could be interpreted in multiple ways. Um, it's literally how our brains have been, were stripped down in law school and built back up uh, to kind of question everything, to see the gray area. Um, and, you know, um, and, and like where I started, um, I wish I didn't have to say learning how to navigate some big egos, but as, as a profession, uh, we have to own that. And so uh, I think coming in with uh, practicing humility and modeling that um, for all of us in the, the profession and, and just especially working with uh, attorneys as a non-attorney um, is the best advice I can give. Thank you. I will take that to heart. Definitely. I think that's sound advice. And it's been really interesting to start navigating these spaces. So I look forward to it. Um, we are almost out of time. So I wanted, but I wanted to make sure that we really talked about, because um, I think our audience is probably full of people already pretty committed to this work. And so what are some of the ways that you make this work sustainable for you? Um, people become very burned out. So what are some of the ways that you have been able to sustain working toward justice for the long haul? Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I, I've, think about this in, in kind of multiple ways, and I, I'm not sure I have any great answers about around burnout, but, but I, I do have some ideas. And, and so um, first, I really appreciate you with your identity as a white woman doing this work um, taking on the burden to educate, because I think one of the causes of burnout for people of color is, ha is holding the responsibility, not only uh, for some of the microaggressions and um, things that have burnt out people of color in, in workplaces over the years, and then also having to hold the burden of educating people why certain actions are not okay and discriminatory. Um, and then I think about it through a, a lens of, you know, what I do for work uh, in a civil rights space uh, at the ACLU. We work with so many people who have been uh, traumatized. And so that can take a toll in and of itself just doing justice work, right? And so the, the buzz phrase, self-care uh, just opens up a whole world of, of something else that I think is becoming misunderstood because it's been so easy to say, oh, just take care of yourself, take time for yourself. And, and um, what I've been finding is, you know, that is not it's it's decent advice, but it's another way that further drives people into feeling like um, their burnout is something they have to deal with by themselves. And so um, I really enjoy that I work with a team that allows for vulnerability 
And as a leader, I really try to open space uh, for folks to process direct or secondary trauma together as a community, uh, instead of thinking about um, people's trauma and things that they're going through as an individualized thing, just, you know, telling them, hey, we have great benefits, go see a therapist. It's like, no, let's get together. We all have, we're all doing tough work. We're on a team together. Like, let's have a space to process this together as a community. And so that is the best I can do. I I think that uh, justice work um, has uh, its its limits. And, and I think understanding that, um, will take you a long way. Cause you know, no one person or one group's going to solve all the world's problems overnight. So, uh, really being it for the, in the long, for the long haul and, and working together to take care of each other. Um, and so I'm going to ask you the same question. How do you doing this work and avoid burnout? And what are your kind of thoughts on, on keeping people committed to this work and doing it for a long time? I think it's similar to what, um, what you would say is that we need each other or else we're not going to be able to sustain it. And I think that we see that there is a real cost to people feeling isolated within this work and either, and depending on what workplaces people are in or who their friends are or how they build, um, they build community. It can make some people who are starting to question things or starting to really explore these issues feel really isolated. And so I do, I have a community of people that I can call if I need support. I, I also reach out and support to others. I think that um, also there needs to be downtime where people are still just kind of getting to know each other and setting down the work to just have a barbecue, which I think that that's, what's been really hard about COVID is, and really, really hard about summer of 2020 was just not being able to be together with people. And I think that that has continued through the the pandemic of having these individual rich conversations or difficult conversations, very difficult conversations, and then going, going home to whatever it is you go home to, whether it's alone or with a partner or just kids, um, you know, there has to be, um, I think at now that we're coming out of the pandemic, I think I said this last year though, so who knows, <laughs> but that we do need to start making a concerted effort to learn how to be together in the work again and how to take care of each other and how to, now that we're all out of the crisis of all of it, um, then to start making time and space for that. So that's what I, that's what I think about when you ask that I, question. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I mean, gosh, I really like that you named uh, the current working conditions under COVID and it's something we haven't really talked about for this conversation. And that could be a whole different podcast because, you know, I, I, one thing I think about the pandemic is it's really put a spotlight on some of these disparities we're talking about in, in every system, right? The, the legal system, the healthcare system, our school systems, housing. And so, um, you know, if there's any kind of silver lining, I think that it that we've really put a, a a spotlight on some of those things and and 
some of those disparities are easier to see, and hopefully that makes them easier to address. Any other words you can think of as we wrap up? Anything else you want to say? No, I'll just where where I um I'll I'll end where I started by just um, giving uh, another shout out to my mentor and so many civil rights lawyers in this state, um, Mr. Civil Rights. Phil Davis, I, I miss him every day, and I, you know, still hard for me to come to terms with that I, I can't call him or email him for advice in my my work every day. Um, and then, you know, to wish everybody a happy Black History Month. Well, thank you so much, and I look forward to more work with you. So, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department and Equity and Justice Program. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Kevin McLeod at IncomTech. The views of the presenters are that of their own and not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.